0: Amen. Be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. As we work through one of, well, third sermon in a chapter that is rather emotionally demanding on us as it shapes our behaviors in ways that perhaps we might not be overly excited to have them shaped. I would remind you this is the Word of God. It is uh, forever. It was written a long time ago, but because God wrote it, He's infinitely wise, and He wrote it for the original readers, wrote it for you and everyone in between, and those that come after. So this is God's Word for you today, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, "'Have patience with me, I will pay you everything.'" And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Lord, would you please give life and light give understanding give clarity of speech and clarity of hearing we pray for Christ's sake amen what do we do with the sins of others what do we do with the sins of others that that's a question that uh, interestingly our culture is actually asking at kind of this moment in time and uh, over the last couple of years, we've uh, culturally watched a kind of new phenomenon on how to, how to process the sins of others, uh, where we've kind of watched the arrival of cancel culture. Uh, I can't explain to you the history of how it came to be, namely, not because I don't know it, but because it's not actually uh, publicly acceptable for me to explain it in the pulpit. I can't say it without... Uh, the The really unpleasant, negative, misogynistic, and terrible way that that term was even invented and popularized, but for those that know what cancel culture is, you kind of depending on which side of uh, the the view of cancel culture you take you 're going to understand it as one of two ways: the practice itself is to see someone 's sin and as a consequence of their sin to remove from them the power to speak. Well, not the power to speak, but the power to be heard to take away their voice so that they lose uh, access to uh, the ears of the people that have been listening. Now, we're watching this happen kind of uh, all over in our kind of cultural moment happening uh, politically. We're watching it happen with our entertainers, with our athletes, where uh, somebody misspeaks or somebody uh, has a tweet surface from, you know, 100 years ago, uh, and then suddenly they get canceled. And interestingly, you get to see kind of one of two kind of different views on this, that uh, canceling is just kind of punitive justice that's uh, administering to punish people perhaps wrongly. Uh, there's another side that says uh, cancel culture is finally the way for my, a minority culture to, and this is the quote, to speak the truth to power. To take those who have been in positions of power and positions of authority and positions of leadership and positions of influence and have used their words incorrectly and to hold them accountable. To speak truth to power. As I was reading on this, uh, I ran into an article from uh, Vox, which is obviously kind of no friend to the right traditionally, uh, but from an article from August of 2020, they had this interesting quote kind of processing just cancel culture in general, and the the end of the quote is the most significant, Uh, talking about the, the views of some really like the idea of cancel culture, some that really hate the idea of it. Nonetheless, this is the quote, the divide seems to be widening and growing more visible. And it isn't purely a divide between ideologies, but also a divide between tactical approaches in navigating ideological differences and dealing with wrongdoing. And this is the sentence. The view that a traditional approach, apology, atonement, forgiveness, the view that that is not enough might be startling. It's interesting, Vox has already kind of diagnosed that What's happening here is in our kind of cultural moment, we're watching with the arrival of cancel culture an attempt as a nation to redo the traditional approach of how to deal with sin. Apology, atonement, and forgiveness. Because the beating heart of cancel culture is there is no longer forgiveness. You have abused your power, and it will be stripped from you. Now, I acknowledge as I'm uh, preaching in a suburban church in Fort Mill, South Carolina, that for most of us, we don't have enough kind of cultural cachet or influence or fame for cancel culture to matter to any of us. Most of us, ooh, wow, you might get canceled from your 15 Instagram followers, and that would really hurt your feelings. (laughs) In fact, actually, I guess for most of us, really, the reality of the matter is, is when we engage with cancel culture, it might just make us angry. Depending on which side of it you fall on, that political topic or whatever hateful or stupid thing the person did, it, it might make you angry for the victim, it might make you angry for the perpetrator, it might make you angry either way. The interesting thing, though, that I, I think, though, is that cancel culture is just simply verbalizing what we've been doing in our own hearts for thousands of years. Cancel culture at its core is looking at someone and saying, they sinned, and therefore they lose my respect, they lose my honor, they lose the ability for me to listen, and they can never have it Back. Uh, you'll know I, I tend to despise most things Jane Austen, but in Pride and Prejudice, she absolutely nails this. right? The famous quote from Mr. Darcy I cannot forget the follies and vices of others so soon as I ought, nor their offenses against myself. The line, right, you all know it, my good opinion once lost is lost forever. Friends, that is cancel culture at its core, pride and prejudice wrapped up in one moment, and the sad reality is it 's something that many Christians have begot, have kind of gotten spectacular at doing right? we 've sadly are well practiced and well skilled at watching the sins of others, privately judging them between our ears. Judge, jury, executioner, finding them guilty and then cutting them off from our respect, our honor forever. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. I mean, honestly, you should be able to see their faces in your mind. Those people that you watched them sin and you lost all respect for them. Those ones that you know you harbor deep down in your soul that you just won't really even consider giving them a second chance. Your good opinion, once lost, has been lost forever. It's a really convenient way to think. The problem with it is that it's tragically sinful, downright evil. Completely kind of uh, contra the flow of Scripture. And Matthew 18 has been a chapter that's just continued to hurt our feelings. It's telling me all the ways that I like to feel, all the ways that I, I like to deal with other people that hurt me, all the ways that I like to think about the world, all of them are wrong. And now here we have a section dealing specifically with how to handle the sins of others. And we've seen there's a development in the chapter. The first sermon, the first section dealt with sin just kind of in generic to say, look, sin is a big deal. It's not something that can be taken lightly. That's why we sang stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You who think of sin but lightly, think about the cost that it took to fix it. Even your most minute, socially acceptable sins cost the Lord of glory his life. Dying on a cross, undergoing the wrath of God. Sin is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that the middle section of chapter 18 lays out a pattern of how to deal with it with God's people. You have two choices. You can either forgive and forget, actively forgive and forget, or you have to confront. And staged confrontation so that we're not just hitting each other with a flame war nuking each other needlessly. But with patience and clarity, laboring to, to cultivate reconciliation between Christians, dealing with sin so that it gets addressed, resolved, and restored. It's given us the pattern, but if you think about the pattern, well, the good common sense question, Peter puts voice to that which we should be all feeling in some form or fashion. Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother or my sister? How often do I have to give forgiveness? And you know what, that, that's actually a really significant question. It's not actually as awful as the way that it seems Peter's asking here. In fact, actually, uh, the common Jewish uh, reasoning at the time, the rabbis at that time had reasoned out, I don't know where they got this from, but reasoned out that you were morally obligated to forgive a person three times. And after the third time, you were allowed to kind of say, no more forgiveness, you're a loser forever. Peter, you can see, is beginning to understand the gospel in a new and fresh way, and so he is unbelievably generous, offers more than double what the rabbis would have taught him. Hey, we're supposed to forgive three times. He says, should I forgive seven times? And really, what a great question. How many times Does my my brother or my sister Christian get to do the same sin and say they're sorry and it still be okay? How many times? Because if we're honest, we all have a number, don't we? I wish many of us it was as generous as seven. Some of us it's two. I forgave you once. I forgave you twice, you're dead to me. We're, never that, we're not we're never that crass, we're far more sophisticated in our sin. Alright, so before I guess we go any further, we do have to define, what, what is forgiveness? This is a term that's thrown out in the concept of Christianity, and uh, sometimes I think we tend to think of, of biblical forgiveness much like we handle our little children, Right? When the kids were young and one accidentally bumped the other one and they're crying in their tears and you say, go say you're sorry, and the one pouts over, I'm sorry, and the other one's like, I forgive you, and nobody's happy and nobody cares, right? It's just a formality that we send them through. Now, forgiveness is, I think probably the best definition is one that Jay Adams often talked about was, it is a commitment, an intentional commitment, a promise Never to bring up the sin to the sinner, to yourself, or anyone else. It is a commitment, an active commitment to forgetfulness, to intentionally forget things, to, to put them away, to make it so that that sin no longer defines the relationship. <clears throat> so that it no longer kind of shapes how we think of things. An active putting way of the offense. Now, this is hard to do. Right? Perhaps someone here might have, have uh, played baseball when they were little. They played catcher. Right? And the bat going right over your head every time. What do you do? That? It's hard. You have to teach a catcher not to flinch. Because every time the back goes over there, they flinch, they can't catch the ball. It's like a, a trained reaction of just every time we see something happen, we can lock them. And the other term for that is if in firearms, you get gun shy, it shocks you, and you, you kind of have this automatic, kind of automated response to lock up. And too often, I think, as Christians, that sometimes is how our forgiveness looks. Is we're willing to forgive when we're happy, but the second that something challenges us or triggers us or, or forces us to think about the problem at hand or perhaps even they sinned the same sin again, well, our promise to put it away disappears. Our promise to forget their sin, to actively forget their sin disappears. And you can see how this gets to be very difficult to implement. What a question from Peter. Jesus, how many times do I have to forget intentionally as a commitment and a promise? How many times do I have to promise to forget that my brother has sinned against me? Because there's a point where I just get tired of it. I'm just fed up with it. I'm just done. Right? I'm just done. Jesus' response here is spectacular because he he doesn't fully explain forgiveness. Instead, what he does is give us a lesson on reasons why we should forgive. He gives us a number of them just very quickly of of why we are supposed to forgive and, and kind of really what it is. First answer, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Well, uh, Jesus is making point, kind of reason number one. Moderated forgiveness, limited forgiveness isn't really forgiveness. Forgiveness is kind of an all or nothing thing. It's, It's one of those, it's full send, it's all in. You have to be totally committed, totally bought in to forgive well. It's unbelievably terrifying to forgive well. It's incredibly vulnerable because it it gives that person access back into your life in some form or fashion. It gives them access to the parts of your heart that hurt, which is why you wanted to cut them out in the first place. It's treating them like they never hurt you in the first place. again, standard American caveat, if you need to call the police, please call the police. Jesus' answer here is not to put a number on it, right? It's not to take, well, the rabbis are saying three, Peter's saying seven. I'll just increase it to 77 or 70 times seven if you're in the NIV. Instead, what he's doing here, Jesus is taking uh, seven, which was kind of in Jewish land. It was the number of completion and to say 77 is, is total completion. It's an effectively an infinite number. How many times should I forgive my brother? Well, true, real forgiveness doesn't have a number. It's an, an infinite number. You can't exhaust it. You can't run out of it. You can't overuse it. It's a, uh, an endless supply. And friends, if you're kind of actually paying attention and, and emotionally thinking through the sermon, this point should make you very uncomfortable. Because all of us have issues in our lives, issues in our heart, and people in our lives that we already are, have a counter ticking on them. As they approach that threshold of just, I'm done. I'm not interested in forgiving anymore. You know, and the, the really kind of tragic realities of this are the people that you have to forgive the most are the people that are closest to you. Mainly because they sin against you the most, you're just with them. Their sinner, your sinner, they're going to sin against you the most. Usually that's family or roommates or things like that. Moderated forgiveness isn't really forgiveness. It's withheld. It's transactional. It's, It's a way that kind of is a mechanism to keep back from the other person. Because the point that Jesus is making is that if you're really going to genuinely, actively forget a person's sin, you can't have a number because that's still keeping track of it. That's going to be the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. Love keeps no record of wrongs. There's no number attached to it. Well, that was the 438th time I've had to forgive you for that. You only got five more and then I'm out. You know, the the biblical approach for that is actually, that's the first time I've had to forgive you for that. Because I've forgotten all the others. It's not defining how I think of you and how you think of me and how we think of each other. If you're actually going to emotionally engage that concept, I'm just going to tell you right now, friends, almost all of us have very little idea of what forgiveness actually is. Because we do not give that freely. That's how freely our God gives to us, but that's not how freely we give to others. Moderated forgiveness isn't really forgiveness, and then the Lord jumps into a parable, and parables, remember, are not designed so that every little uh, specific detail uh, carries exact weight, but rather the details that carry the kind of flow of the story are what are important to pay attention to. The parable is of a king who's dealing with his slaves— uh, and the slaves that have been most likely managing his household and or managing the various regions of his kingdom. And as um, possibly a yearly audit or you know, every five-year audit or something, he's bringing various slaves in to uh, examine their books, so to speak, to check on uh, how they've been doing in his service. He's been through a list of them and brings one in that uh, is the one at hand. And verse 24 has to settle uh, what is before him a debt of 10,000 talents. Uh, Depending on which book you read or which study Bible you have, they're going to try to put a number value on that to help you understand dollars and cents. And I think actually dollars and cents is is a liability for understanding because we live in the world that is the most uh, financially upward mobile in human history. You can come from a family where uh, you know, mom and dad both worked two or three jobs that all made minimum wage. Uh, they can pay for you to go to school, and you can come out and get a great career that's making you know, way more money than they've ever seen. We live in the most financially upwardly mobile time in human history. The time in which this was written was not financially upward mobile. In fact, it was so fixed that they had kind of very specific wages for what a day's wage was for work, and that a day laborer knew you were always going to make a denarius. So to put this in perspective, 10,000 talents would be by a day's wages if we took every man, woman, and child in the town of Fort Mill and put them to work six days a week, 52 weeks a year. It would take just under three years to pay this debt off. To put that in a little bit more kind of specific terms, that if this was a debt that you were going to pay off by yourself, it would only take you 200,000 years of labor to pay it off. Hear that number, 200,000 years of labor. Friends, that is a big number. I mean, it's, it's so many lifetimes of work that you couldn't even imagine paying it off. Jesus is setting the stage for his application of forgiveness. Kind of with our second idea here is that the Lord has already forgiven us a massive debt at his experience. I mean, at his expense. Talking about size, right? This is an absolutely stupendously huge amount of money. Now again, thanks to uh, a world that has more money kind of uh, talked about than ever before and nations that are in greater debt than ever before, we talk about really big numbers. Uh, This is a, a time in world history where they didn't talk about big numbers the way that we did. So what Jesus is presenting to them here is a portrait of a man who owes so much you could not conceive of how big the number is. Right? This was like when you were a kid and you were you know, insulting your brother or sister or whatever and you're trying to one-up each other. Well, you know, uh, you're such and such to the millionth power, to the billionth power, to the trillionth power, and then you start making up numbers because you don't know what comes after a trillion. That's effectively what Jesus is doing. Right? It's so big, you cannot wrap your mind around how large the debt is. Now, it's interesting, when it comes time to have a conversation about forgiveness, Jesus is interestingly beginning the conversation, not with the other person's failings, but with my failings. Lord, how many times should I forgive this loser that sinned against me so many times? How many times will Jesus, no, 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 no. In order to have a conversation about forgiveness, we need to have a conversation about your sin. A conversation about you understanding what you have done against the Lord God himself. You who think of sin but lightly. Look at the cost your sin took to get it resolved. Your sin, your specific sin, everything that you have done, every single instance of how you have broken God's law cost Jesus his life on the cross. And there's no two ways around that. Periodically, I like to think about this kind of within the context of, of my own children. Obviously, I love my children, they're my favorites. And I love you. You're my favorites, but less favorites. And if I had to think about giving up either one of my children for all of you, not one of you, all of you, I would have to find a new job because you would all be gone. Right? Simple choice. Between my child and all of you, you're on the losing end of that transaction. Me and my two children and my wife are going to have to go find a new career because I won't have a job because you'll be dead. (laughs) And then to think that Jesus goes to the cross for me. And I'd like to pretend that that transaction looks a little bit better, but in reality it doesn't, right? The way the scriptures explain it's quite clear. Jesus goes to the cross, Romans 5, 8, while I was still a sinner, while I was an enemy of God, while I hated him. So it's that God sent his son to die, not for people who loved him. It wasn't to, to reconcile the sins of those who were his children at the time. It was to reconcile traitors, enemies, Those fighting for the other team, those actively working against his kingdom, hating him with every fiber of his being, and the father then sent his son for them. And then even more just absolutely mind-blowing to me, he adopted us. (laughs) I mean, from a, a human standpoint, that has to be the worst decision in human history. That God would forgive sinners and then make them his children. It's like finding the greatest traitor in American history and promoting them like vice president or something. Like, no, we execute them in the street. We don't we don't make them in the leaders in the country. We don't give them rights and privileges. We, we don't put them in positions of power. That's what God does. Takes people like you and me. Forgives us and makes us his children. Forgiveness, friends, is totally different when you begin to understand what it cost God to save you. The reality of the matter is, is when we have a counter in our head, what we're ticking off for uh, our brother or our sister in the church, and when we're uh, judging them and when we're unwilling to forgive them, the reality of the matter is because we've forgotten that we are forgiven as we are. What we're trying to do at that point is to say, well, they're the bad person because I'm the good person, which is a nonsense and a lie. Moderated forgiveness isn't really forgiveness. The Lord has forgiven us a massive debt at his expense. Third, the Lord's forgiveness is motivated by his mercy. This is an interesting development in uh, the parable. Verse 25 to 27, verse 25, the man was not able to pay, no joke, right? This is a, large, a sum of money large enough that uh, it would be, un, you, nobody could pay it back. It, it's unrecoverable. I mean, think about it. It's likely probably like 10 years worth of taxes from an entire region. You, you cannot recover that amount of money. So what does the man do? The king does in verse 25 is, well, the master orders the slave to be sold, and his wife and his children and all of his property. Now, uh, that realistically is only going to amount to about this much money. It's not like it, this is his way of reclaiming loss. This is the king exercising his wrath. Right? He's, he's punishing the man. He's condemning him. Look, you've, you've squandered whatever it is. You're massively indebted. So my punishment to you is going to be that you, your family, everything's going to be sold into slavery. You're all going to, you've lost everything. Verse 26, the man pleads with the most hysterically ridiculous answer ever. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And not possible, you can't. It's a number too big to be repaid. You can't pay it back. Look at verse 27, though. This is highlighting here the heart of God, it's explaining it clearly. Out of pity, out of mercy the king forgives the slave's debt. We forget that that's the Lord's design for his people sometimes it seems. While we were deserving of his his wrath, uh, we're called children of wrath in another part of scripture. Our God is merciful. He shows his heart and how he interacts with his people because he's forgiven us and has forgiven us over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, think about how many times that person has sinned against you. You've sinned against God a lot more times than that. Many more. But our God is a God of mercy, a God of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. gracious in his very essence toward his people. In fact, he's so gracious with us, we have nothing to fear of being gracious to each other. He's going to be our protector. He's going to be our provider. He's the one who's going to take care of us. We can give generously and forgive generously and be gracious to each other because our God is gracious with us. Well, what happens in the story, we get to the next point here. Forgiveness is more important than whatever wrong was done to us. The king forgives him. <clears throat> the guy's pretty excited. Interestingly, he doesn't mention that, but I'm sure he is. Verse 28 in the story, in the parable, the same servant goes out and uh, one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 uh, denarii. It is wrong to say this is pocket change. The denarius was roughly a day's wages for a common laborer, so what we're talking about here is three to four months of pay. This is not an insignificant amount of money. I mean, if I borrowed a quarter of your paycheck for the year and didn't pay it back, many of you would find that inconvenient. Just going to go out on a limb and say that, right? Many of you would find that inconvenient. The other thing that we kind of oftentimes forget, and for those that have heard this passage so many times, you've probably never paid attention to, uh, is that when he begins to choke the man and then has him pay it back, that is literally what the law allowed for. If you borrowed money and didn't pay it back, that's called stealing. And the way that you handled stealing was to grab the thief, take him to the authorities, and then he was thrown in prison and held in prison until the rest of the family paid the loan back, right? It was kind of the way that the family was leveraged into it. If I had been the thief in that regard, I was thrown in prison until Nikki and the kids and all of the rest of the clan could could scrounge up enough money to pay back my debt so I could get back out and could contribute to the home. Interestingly, the unforgiving servant, which is what this is labeled, is not unforgiving per se, He's actually literally doing what the law allowed. He's being just. I mean, again, it's the same thing. If I, if I ask permission to borrow your car for a couple of days, and after six months hadn't given it back, and when you ask, like, can I have my car back? And then never gave it back to you eventually it would get a little old, right? And at some point you would think, well, it's not really borrowing after five years and 150,000 miles. I mean, this is theft. You've just stolen it. What are you doing? And eventually what you do is you would call the police, would you not? And the police would come and arrest me for thievery, and correctly so. The interesting thing here is that that's exactly what this man is doing, though, is he's pursuing what his rights are within the law. He's pursuing what he's allowed to do to the thief within the law. And interestingly, what's the point that Jesus makes? Is that whatever wrong was done to you, whatever was stolen from you, and whatever rights you actually have, they are less important than forgiveness. I mean, putting this in perspective, forgiving your brother or sister is more important than four months of wages. I mean, think about this again. If you, I mean, just pragmatically, be honest about it. If you had conflict with somebody in this room and they ended up with four months worth of money of yours and didn't pay it back, would that be a sticking point for you? Interestingly, Jesus is making the point that look, it's, it's not worth it. Forgiveness is more important. Forgiveness is far more significant. Forgiveness is far better. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, he actually works through this. The Corinthian church is struggling. They have lots of money, but the, the wealth divide between rich and poor is very strong. They have lawsuits that are taking place inside the church where the rich are using their resources to leverage the courts uh, against those that maybe didn't have quite the same resources. And uh, interestingly, Paul's pastoral counsel to them is it's better to be defrauded than it is to actually uh, sue your brother. It's better to just lose the money than it is to not forgive. Whatever you lose is less important than the forgiveness that you extend. It's more important to forgive for their soul's sake, and it's more important to forgive for your soul's sake. And friends, again, I I love the fact that this is a reality that emotionally we just don't want to deal with. Because most of us would say, my feelings are more important than your forgiveness. Because you treated me like a jerk, and you hurt my feelings, and you made me angry, and that is enough of a reason not to forgive you. I may mean, not never tell you that because I'm a Southern. I would stab you in the back instead, right? You'll never know I didn't forgive you until the knife descends perfectly can't even reach it right that perfect spot behind the shoulder blades the sad reality is that many of us we've we've developed a bad habit though where we think that whatever is important to us is more important than forgiveness jesus is challenging that friends Forgiving is more important than your money. Forgiving is more important than your feelings. Forgiving is more important than your rights. Forgiving is more important than your privileges. Forgiving is of utmost importance to Christians. Well, why? Very quickly, ending here. Because at the very end, that's, that's the point of application that he then gives. The king then drags the the other wicked servant back in. And your ESV translates it a bit delicately. He hands him over not to the jailers to be jailed. He hands him over to the torturers to be tortured. By valuing his rights above forgiveness, he receives punishment. And then with the promise that this is what the heavenly father does to those who do not forgive. You see, forgiveness is part of the Christian's new nature. It's part of our DNA. It's who we're called to be. We are called to be those that forgive. And it should be a very great warning to us. If God has forgiven us everything, if we're not willing to forgive each other moderate things or even minor things, sometimes major things, it should be a point of great concern. And very quickly, just a couple of applications. This is the key to a healthy church. Matthew 18 is laying it out, really. It's how to deal with people and how to deal with their sin and in a way that I don't like to do. And you should do a couple of things in light of this. One, give your forgiveness easily. Some of us will say, well, I'll forgive, but I'm going to make them jump through 3,800 hoops before I do. Friends, that's not forgiveness. That's called punishment. Right? where you have them punish them. They, they have to feel appropriately bad. They have to cry an appropriate amount of tears before they're sad enough that you can actually forgive them. That's not forgiveness. That's punishment. Give your forgiveness easily. Give it freely. Secondly, don't wait for an apology every time. Certainly, the previous section here of Matthew 18 has helped us give a framework to think about getting apologies and how that interacts, but... Uh, Friends, if you have to wait for an apology every time, you're going to be a miserable, miserable excuse for a person. I mean, think about just in your, in your marriage for those that are married. Every time your spouse sins, if you have to wait for them to apologize, first off, you know that spouse. They will never do anything but apologize. And then they'll have to apologize for their apologies. Forgive freely. Forgive sometimes, in fact, the vast majority of the time, before apologies are ever given. And forgive fully. See, the reality of the the matter here is we like to forgive in part. And to say, when when we say I forgive, what we try to mean is I'm just not mad anymore. I'm never going to forget it. I'm just not mad anymore. Or actually, I'm just not hot angry. I'm cold angry. That is evil, friends. Right? To let your forgiveness just be a cold kind of frosty sort of anger, wrath. Don't do that. The Lord has forgiven you much. He cares for you much. Forgive freely for Christ's sake. Father in heaven, we thank you for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to forgive others as he has forgiven us. For your sake we pray. Amen.